we're asking a lot from our sows. You know, the sows, they don't produce enough milk to sustain maximal growth of the piglets. They don't produce enough colostrum in a lot of cases. So now we need to change our focus. And we need to put the focus not on litter size, which we've focused on for the past 20 years or so, but we need to put our focus on milking capacity of the sow. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Zinpro, Essential Trace Minerals, Exceptional Performance, Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool, Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding, Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way, NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Minitube. Since 1970, Minitube has been at the forefront of assisted reproduction technologies, setting worldwide standards in reproductive technology and giving peace of mind to producers. Offering a full range of products and services, Minitube can increase the efficiency and reproductive health of swine operations. From the boar stud to the sow farm, Learn more at minitube.com. Today with me, I have Dr. Chantelle Farmer, who is a swine biologist in mammary development from Agricultural Canada. Chantelle, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. First first thing. (laughs) We're we're absolutely excited to have you as, as we were talking ahead of time. Sow lactation and and mammary development is something I'm really interested in, so I've been looking forward to our conversation today. I think this will be a wonderful, wonderful 30 to 40 minutes that we visit. Would you mind uh, giving our audience just a little bit of background about yourself for those who may not be familiar with with you and your work? Okay, well, let me first start when I was born. (laughs) I will tell you which year, because I know I look a lot younger than I am actually... (laughs) But I was born in uh, in Montreal City, so I'm really a city girl. So it's kind of amazing, what are you doing in animal science? Basically, I just loved animals. And in the summertime, we went to a farm. My granddad bought, you know, just they had horses and that's about it. But it was just loving nature and animals. And then all of a sudden, when I was doing my bachelor degree, I was good at school. But I thought, gee, what am I going to do? Oh, well, I'll go to grad school and maybe go in biology. And then I knew someone who told me he was studying in animal science. And I went, this is amazing. I can't believe you can actually go to school and learn about animal science. Then to find out it was in the agriculture department. And I said, well, why not? So I went to McGill University, did my bachelor degree in animal science, and I actually fell in love with the subject. And uh, it was really fun, just to give you a little anecdote, because I'm French speaking. 
I went to this English-speaking university, McGill, and in my swine class, I did not know the terminology in English. So the first lab we had, we were to visit a swine barn. In my mind, a swine barn was the plural of swan. I thought I was going to go in a room and see a lot of swans on nice little ponds. I opened the door and I see a bunch of pigs. <laughs> what is this? So I decided I have to learn the terminology. What is a guilt, a bore? <laughs> so I learned all that. So I, I had to start from a <laughs> way back. So it was funny. And then when I finished my bachelor, and that was in 1980, uh, I applied for jobs, but as a city girl who had never been on a farm, I did not feel comfortable working for a nutrition company and giving advice to producers. So I said, let me just keep on studying. I applied all over Canada to study with horses because I love horses. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was accepted everywhere, but to do a grad study, you need money. So one person from the University of Saskatchewan wrote back to me and he said, I have money for a great project with sows and piglets looking at the choice test of different types of flooring in the farrowing pen and for wiener decks. And he said, forget horses. They're really nice. But in order to have a life, you know, a career, you should really focus more on the pig aspect. And I said, okay, I will try it. Then I did that first study. And I mean, how can you handle a baby pig and work with piglets and not fall in love with them? I'm sorry, it's impossible. <laughs> so I fell in love really with these baby pigs and also with the aspect of research. So after my master's, I knew this is what I love. This is what I want to do. So then I continued, finished that in 82. Then I went to Penn State University in the States. And then I worked more in endocrinology, but still on piglet survival. And I was very, very lucky. While I was doing my PhD, there was a program from Agriculture uh, Canada who was paying people to finish their grad studies as long as we would go back and work for them for as many years as they've paid. I'm like, that, that's like a perfect deal. <laughs> it's a win-win situation. So for the past five years as a grad student, I had a stipend as a biology from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, as a biologist, I mean. And then I had to come back for five years to Sherbrooke, which is close to the Eastern Townships, so close to Vermont. But that was fine with me. So I came back for five years and I've been there ever since. So finished my PhD in 1986, to make a long story short, and I've been a research scientist since then at the same place, in the same office, <laughs> and loving every minute of it. And my, my son, who's now 26, he tells me, mom, you keep doing the same thing. You do project, the project, aren't you bored? I told him, I said, it's like making a puzzle. If you like doing puzzles, which I happen to do, it's always a puzzle, but it's never the same picture. So you always have fun. So I told him research is the same way. You're always doing a research project, but you're never asking yourself the same question and you always get a different answer. So no, it's not the same. So anyway, as you can see, I mean, 30 some years later, <laughs> I'm still very fascinated by it and loving it, you know, uh, just as much as I did originally. So I've been working first in, uh, well, I've always worked with one goal in mind, which is increase sow milk yield and increase weight of piglets at weaning. So basically through sow milk yield. At the beginning, I worked also a bit on fetal development, uh, trying to use you know, hormones and gestation and so on. 
And then for the past 15 years, I'm, I focus quite a bit on memory development. And why have I done that? Because we know, we've only known since 1991 in pigs, that the number of cells that are present in mammary tissue at the beginning of lactation is important for potential milk yield. So you say, okay, anything I can do to increase that number of milk secreting cells would be advantageous. And then you ask yourself, okay, when, when do I do this? Well, you have to know when does it happen? When does it take place? So memory development in pigs. Well, now I'm, I'm, I've moved on from my background, as you realize. <laughs> fine. It's fine. Okay. Stop me if it's too much out of the topic, but I'm talking about memory glands, so we should be okay. So anyway, in pigs, there are three stages of rapid memory development. One starts at 90 days of age, up to puberty. The second one is in the last third of gestation. So at about 90 days of gestation. So I always tell people, remember the number 90, 90 days of age to puberty, 90 days of gestation to farrowing, and then lactation. It's only when you have mammary development taking place that you can attempt to stimulate it. The other thing I always say is that three times zero gives zero. If the gilt has no mammary development, I don't care what hormone or what feed you're gonna give her, it will not enhance it. Three times zero will still give you zero. But if you have a slope, if you do have some memory accretion going on, then you can steepen the slope and make sure that there is a more rapid memory development. So those three periods that I mentioned are the only periods where you can do anything to enhance memory development. Then as a research scientist, I say, well, lactation is fine, but I would rather work before that because I want my cell to start lactation already with the maximum number of milk synthesizing cells. So I focus my research either in pre-puberty or in late gestation and trying to see what can we do to stimulate mammary development. And that was my introduction. <laughs> Are you ready for the most innovative web conference of the swine industry? Swine Talks, the TED Talks of the global swine industry on October 6th and 7th, 2021, with over 25 internationally renowned speakers who will deliver powerful and engaging talks. Reserve now your spot at swinetalks.com. I think that's really good. It actually it, it makes me think and, and it leads me to the first question I want to ask you, um, particularly as we talk in, in the U.S. and we talk to producers, um, we're talking more and more about guilt development and setting that female up for success for a longer term in, in the farrowing house. And and so when you look at the research that you've done in the prepubital guilt, so from 90 days of age up until her first heat, what are some things that, that our farmers should know today about what they can do to make her more successful? The first thing that's really obvious is that you don't want to do any feed restriction. It's really neat because if you do a 20% feed restriction before the 90 of age, it will not affect memory development at puberty. Why? Because there is no memory development going on at that time. So if you need to restrict feed intake, it has to be before day 90, but actually nobody on earth will ever do that. But as of 90 days of age to puberty, you do not want to decrease feed intake. The guilt has to eat ad libitum. Once again, you can say, well, well yeah, well, all producers are gonna do this. Sure, except recently. <laughs> <laughs> 
because now we have more leg problems. That's a major cause of, you know, uh, culling gilts and sows. And we have genetics that makes our animals grow faster. So the faster they grow, the more leg problems they have. So some pork producers say, okay, I'm going to slow down growth rate of my gilt in that growing period before puberty to make sure I don't have too much leg problems. But if you do this, it's not good for mammary development. So what I've done now is I've done another project with uh, Leah Newber at the University of Guelph. And, uh, and this is with Swine Innovation Poor. Anyway, that's the, the funding <laughs> I need to mention. It. <laughs> anyway, and in that study, I wanted to say, okay, let's do again a 10%, 20% feed restriction. I want to see if 10% feed restriction maybe will have no negative effect on mammary development. So I could tell producers, if you want to slow down growth rate, 10% is okay. Then 20%, I thought it will have a negative impact. And then I said, let's add 25% fiber to decrease energy density in the diet by 5%. So the animal will eat and not feel as hungry, but maybe it will not have as negative an impact on mammary tissue. And in that study, uh, the animal trial looking at zoo technical parameters was done at Guelph. And at Sherbrooke, I was doing the study where I was slaughtering the pigs at puberty and looking at mammary tissue. And thanks to COVID, right before slaughter, I was not allowed to get the mammary tissue and slaughter the pigs. We have to stop the project. So I will never know that answer. However, the project had well continued. And I know that in terms of milk yield, so growth rate of the piglets, there was no difference between the groups. So I was surprised. I'm like, well, gee, a 20% restriction I've already shown does create, you know, uh, negative effect in terms of mammary development. However, when you look at the amount of feed eaten, that's where the difference is. Nowadays, our control animals, they ate like 3.5 kilos. But in my old study, they ate 2.8 kilos or so. So when you do this 20% restriction, the amount of feed they're eating is not the same. So maybe with high producing gills that are eating a lot more, it's okay to do a 10 or 20% feed restriction because this study showed milk yield was okay. But on the other hand, if you have animals that don't eat as much, I know in my study, we went down to about 2.1 kilo of average feed intake in that prepubertal period, and that was bad. So depending on the amount of feed eaten, you may or may not have a negative effect on mammary tissue. So I can tell producers, attempt to feed ad libitum. That's the ideal situation. If you have to cut down, increasing the fiber intake would be the most advantageous way to do it in order to achieve you know, a slower growth rate, but not to have a negative effect on the milk yield. Uh, the other thing I know in prepubertal, there's really not so much known on feeding of prepubertal animals. The, only, the other thing I knew is the, well, we know estrogens have a positive effect on mammary development. So I thought, okay, how can I increase estrogens without actually injecting the hormone in the animal, which I didn't want to do. So I fed animals with uh, flax because flax contains lignans that have estrogenic properties. So when I used 10% flaxseed or flax, uh, there was no beneficial effect. 
But then I told myself, okay, maybe the estrogenic effect is not great enough. So let me do something else to try to give more of an estrogenic effect. So then I gave a phytoestrogen, so a plant source of estrogen. So the one I used was genistein, and I took 2.3 grams of genistein, added it in the feed of the gills from day 90 to puberty, and yes, I increased DNA in the mammary tissue, which means more cells. So if you can do something to increase the estrogenic status of that growing gilt, it will stimulate her mammary development. So I guess that's something that in terms of feed companies would be worth looking into to see what products are there. I mean, the genistein is not easily available now here, but if it could be, then it might be a good idea to use it. And the last thing we know is that if you increase the hormone prolactin in that period, you get a doubling in terms of the cells in the mammary tissue. So then we go again, how do we increase a hormone in a growing animal? And I've tried in the gestating animal to use feed to increase prolactin and it increased it, but not enough to bring to a positive effect. So Right now in growing gills, I don't have an ideal solution to increase prolactin. I just know if you do increase it, it will stimulate memory development. And in a nutshell, that's what we know about the growing animal. I've done some study looking at compensatory feeding. We talked earlier and I know that's something you're interested in. So we did feed restriction followed by compensatory feeding um, and following some of Crenshaw's, Dr. Crenshaw's study who had published an abstract and saw a positive effect on the expression of beta casein, so protein synthesis in the milk, so most likely an increase in milk. But anyway, I never managed to get enough of a compensatory growth effect to stimulate mammary development. So either I did my restriction period too severe or too long, so I would definitely need to go back and do another study to answer the question, does compensatory growth also occur in the mammary tissue. If the rest of the animal is growing faster, does mammary tissue also grow faster? So we don't know the answer. So that's something else that needs to be done in the, well, there's a lot of things that need to be done, but this is something that would follow up on what I've done originally. So I still don't have the answer as to the effect of compensatory growth on memory development in growing gills. And that's it for puberty. <laughs> I think that's really interesting because um, at least in the United States, feed costs right now, of course, are, are very, very high. So we're looking at really high prices for corn. And so naturally what our producers want to do is, of course, find alternatives. We use a lot of dry distillers grains in the United States, and, and we do use them quite frequently in gilt developers. But when we take distillers grain into the diets, we pull out soybean meal. And again, we feed a lot of synthetic amino acids. And so um, I think it's really interesting the conversation about genistein because we know that genistein exists in soybean meal. Um, certainly different soybeans have different levels and you know, different products have different levels. Um, but I think it's something that maybe we're not talking about as much as we should be, right? Because we've always said, well, we know soybeans can help with, or isoflavones can help with PERS infections and so forth. But uh, I think that's really interesting that maybe we need to do a little bit more digging from a guilt development side, because um, I do think we've missed that part. 
Yeah, I learned something. I learned how to pronounce Genestine. I always said Genestine. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever told me. So Genestine, I will try to remember that. That's how I pronounced it. That was that was actually my master's work. So I don't... Um, we don't know who's yeah. right. Yeah. But, but I wanted to say, you're talking about soybean, and that's very interesting. Because in one study, I had a negative control without soybean in the ration. And my positive control with soybean, and then my animal with genistine or genistine, whatever, <laughs> on top of the soya. And just the fact of having, so, of having soybean in the diet was not enough to stimulate mammary development. So yes, it has beneficial effect, but in terms of the mammary tissue, you would need to give quite a bit to be able to have an estrogenic effect that would be high enough. So you would need to have other more concentrated sources of isoflavones through some other means, but obviously having that there is good, but we need greater amounts to have beneficial effect for mammary tissue. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's good to know. So something to, to give our companies something to think about, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that you talked about that, that caught my attention was fiber. Um, so, you know, gestation work, I, I know we've, I've read many studies where we give fiber in late gestation and we can improve milk yield. In your experience though, is, is all fiber the same? Because again, you know, we talk about distiller's grain fiber versus other sources of fiber. And, and so can you help our, our audience understand a little bit more about what types of fiber might be more beneficial than others? Okay, well, first I'm gonna say I'm not a nutritionist. So sure. I, understand. <laughs> I will not give a big lecture on fibers, but what I do know is that the type of fiber is very important. And when you look at the data, fibers such as beet pulp or pectin residues, they have a favorable effect when you look at colostrum yield. Whereas other source of fiber, you know, wheat straw or whatever other fiber don't have a beneficial effect or not as much. So sadly enough, a lot of the fiber study was done in Europe and they have the good fiber because they use sugar beet pulp all the time. And what they're doing is not representative of what we're doing in Canada and the States because we don't have that source of fiber. So you're very, very right. The type of fiber that is being used is very important in terms of the beneficial or not beneficial effect on the mammary tissue. Very good. Um, so you also talked about clostrogenesis there. I heard you talk a little bit about colostrum amounts. And I think that's a very interesting question, particularly when we talk about our increasing litter size in, in our females. And um, we've routinely had this question of, does a sow only produce a certain amount of colostrum or you know, how does she adjust or does she adjust? as that litter increases. And so could you maybe help us understand what goes on during maybe the first 12 to 24 hours of parturition? Well, the answer to the question is easy. She does not adjust to litter size. Litter size does not affect the amount of colostrum produced. And all it means is the more piglets you have, the less colostrum each little pig is actually ingesting. On the other hand, you know, each little pig needs 250 grams of colostrum to be able to grow. If they don't have that amount, they will not grow. And obviously to get passive transfer of immunity, to get all the necessary growth factors that are available in the colostrum and so on. So 
when Elenka Kenel in Inra, France, did a study using 200 sows, she noticed that one third of the sows do not produce enough colostrum for a litter of 13 piglets. So now we're talking about litters of 16 and 17. Okay, most likely the sows can produce more colostrum than in her study that was done quite a few years ago, but still it's not enough to catch up with the increase in litter size. So we're asking a lot from our sows, but the amount of colostrum, which is essential to the piglet, has not kept up. So we need to do anything we can to increase the amount of colostrum that the piglet is eating, actually drinking. And recently I've done a project that, anyway, I'm very biased, but I think it's very interesting. <laughs> and it's the period of colostrum production is characterized by a big spacing between the mammary epithelial cells. That space is called the tight junction. And these tight junctions are not tight or are looser in colostrum you know, cholesterogenesis, so that the big molecules from the cell blood, such as immunoglobulins and growth factors, can go right through into the colostrum. And in other species, it was shown that if you inject a very high dose of oxytocin, you can make sure that these tight junctions stay open for a longer period. So I thought, okay, how about the pig? Why would the pig be any different than the goat or the cow? or the rat, there were the three species that were looked at. And it turns out they're not. So if you give one injection of 75 international units of oxytocin, that's a very high dose, super physiological. And ideally you give that 10 to 12 hours after birth of the last piglet. You don't wanna give it when the sow is farrowing or right after <laughs> she needs to be finished with her contractions, please. <laughs> but anyway, about 10 to 12 hours after the last piglet is born, you give one injection. And eight hours after that injection, when you look at the sodium to potassium ratio in colostrum, that gives you an idea of the status of these tight junctions. Well, that ratio is much higher, telling me, yes, the spacing is bigger. So one shot of oxytocin made that difference. It also increased the amount of protein, immunoglobulin G, immunoglobulin A, and a growth factor. So IGF-1 is a growth factor I measured. So yes, we can prolong the colostrogenesis phase with one injection of oxytocin. I tell producers, if you're gonna try this, please ask your vet to be with you and look at health of the animals because I've done that with 10 control and 10 treated sows. I saw no problems, but then again, if you do it on a larger scale, Maybe that's when you will see some, you know, maybe discomfort because of contractions in the sow. That's the only one thing that can come up to, to mind, but it would be best to have, you know, a vet beside you. But in my case, I actually saw a tendency to decrease uh, mortality. So I think the impact will be more in terms of survival of the piglets compared to growth rate. So in my mind, that's one avenue that would be very useful in our hyperprolific animals because it would make them prolong the phase of colostrum production, making sure that each piglet has had its share to make sure that they can <laughs> be good to go on after and uh, have the immune, their immune system, you know, all, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. What about um, colostrum quality or yeah, quality? So um, 
when I think about colostrum quality, we used to have a lot of discussions again around when does that start in gestation? When does colostrum really start to quote develop and mature within that mammary gland? And we would see, you know, three weeks pre-ferro, we'd see serum antibody levels drop significantly in the sow. And so our argument was always, oh, well, it must be happening at that point. But then um, we've had experience with PED and a lot of the vaccines are more effective if we give those vaccines right before the sow pharaohs, as far as getting antibodies into the mammary system. So could you help us understand maybe a little bit about how colostrum is, is being developed in that late gestation period? There's kind of two schools of thought. I'm um, the old one. So from what I've known, it's about day 105 that you would start to have uh, the lactogenesis one, which is when you start to have lacteal secretions that are being synthesized. Uh, some people say that it's closer to parturition. So there's kind of two schools of thoughts, but basically before day 105, you should not really see any lacteal secretion being produced unless you play with hormones because I've gotten my guilds to produce lacteal secretions at puberty with prolactin. So hormones are amazing. They can do a lot of things. So I'd say about the 105, but then obviously uh, as you move closer to parturition, then you have a greater chance of, of transfer, you know, into these uh, secretions. So I think it would still make sense that you see more of an effect when you get closer to parturition because, you know, the, the lacteal or cholesterogenesis process is going, you know, further and further and further, but actually should start about the 105. Okay, very good. Um, so I see that our time is, is kind of coming to an end. Are there any key points that you would like our audience to remember, have a takeaway from today on our conversation? I guess the one thing I would like to say is that uh, we're asking a lot from ourselves. You know, the cells, they don't produce enough milk to sustain maximal growth of the piglets. They don't produce enough colostrum in a lot of cases. So now we need to change our focus. And we need to put the focus not on litter size, which we've focused on for the past 20 years or so, but we need to put our focus on milking capacity of the sow, which also englobes colostrum. So please, when you have a litter, make sure you don't have more piglets than the number of teats. When you select your gills, make sure you look at the number of teats. We have to make sure that the milking capacity is there. So genetics has made gills a bit longer, which is good, but genetic companies need to look at, you know, the, uh, the shape of the body to make sure that the mammary gland has enough room and the number of teats. So we need to kind of shift our focus from litter size to milking capacity of the sow. And then right now, milking capacity is not always there. So we need to assist her. We need to give artificial milk. We need to have nurse sows. We need to do split suckling. So she needs help basically. And that's what we need to do now, either from a genetic standpoint or from a management and nutritional standpoint. And another nutritional standpoint in lactation is, boy, we need to maximize feed intake of the sow as much as she can eat. So anything you can do, please don't start them gradual. Just give them as much meat as they can to try to get as much intake. So 
we need to help this out. <laughs> That's my message. <laughs> yes, I, I am. A, I'm right there with you. I am a big fan of making sure she gets to eat as much as she wants to eat as soon as she is done farrowing. You know, I understand we have some genetics that are a little bit more sensitive, but if, if the animal can handle it, let her eat. Um, yep. You know, she needs that energy for all that milk she's producing because she's she's producing a phenomenal amount of milk relative to body size compared to a dairy cow or any other species we deal with. Exactly. She's mm -hmm. producing more than a dairy cow on a per kilogram basis. So it's, mm -hmm. it's amazing what we're asking of her. Yeah. And she's doing it with a smile. <laughs> Always happy. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it is time to our famous three. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by service, and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technology and efficient operation. Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing, trace mineral nutrition. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. A couple of questions that Marcio always likes to ask our guests on the on the podcast. Um, the first question that he likes to ask is, what's your favorite swine resource? So if you have one that's on your shelf that's your go-to or, or one that you ask students to, to review when you're talking to them, what would be your favorite book? Let me go grab this. Okay. <laughs> I'm very biased. So it's the Gestating and Lactating Sow, it's actually a book that was published with Wageningen Academic Publisher, and I've edited it. And the reason I like it is because, well, first, it was a lot of fun to do, but it really is an update. It was published in 2015. It was an update of everything with the gestation and lactation in sows. And for me, it was great because they're all good friends of mine. So I went and asked a lot of people that I know that couldn't say no to me. <laughs> So it covers a lot of very, very interesting topics, and it was a lot of fun to actually get together. And uh, I've heard a lot of good comments about it. So that's my number one. My number two is the most recent one, which is also with Wageningen Academic Press, and it's uh, the Suckling and Wean Piglet. So somebody who's more interested just on in the piglet aspect, that was published this year in 2020. So they're my two favorite books. <laughs> I, I only wrote a few chapters in each of them, but I edited it. So it was fun because I had to read the whole thing. Didn't remember everything, but I had a lot of interest reading everything that was written there. So I think it's good, good information for people who are interested either in the sow or in the piglet side of things. I wasn't aware of the piglet one. I'll have to look at that one and add that to my library of, of books. I I really do like to have a few sow resource books on my shelf. So I'll definitely look into that one. Excellent. <laughs> How about um, a favorite book of yours that, that's not related to pigs? Do you have any that stick out in your mind? Well, what I can say is as much as I like to work, as much as I like to distract myself, I never read anything serious. 
So I only read murder books. That's all I read. But I love them. And I'm re getting really good at finding out who the murderer is. So uh, if I had to say one book, I think that stayed in my mind. It's actually a medical thriller by Michael Palmer called The Patient. So all these thrillers I love because you get in the story and you completely forget about everything. So it's just pure, pure distraction. <laughs> Play hard and work hard. That's my motto. <laughs> It challenges a little bit, right? That critical thinking comes back through for sure. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Um, so my my last question for you today is really around if you think about people who are successful in your profession, and it doesn't have to be swine or you know it could be research, whatever profession or career you want to define. What what characteristics or qualities makes them stand out to you? Love what you do. I mean, passion. To me, it's number one. I had to give a TED talk for the American Society of Animal Science. And, you know, in five minutes, you have to convey one important message. And the one important message was, you know, it's all about passion. And I told a kid who was 60 old a little while ago, his mom said, please tell him, you know, he should read. And I said, the important thing is to have passion about anything. So if you want to read, ask your mom, to read a book about something you're interested in. And the week after she writes to me and she says, oh, he asked me to forget this book about how this computer game works. But then she sent me a picture of the kid reading that book. So if you're passionate, if you love what you're doing, then first of all, it's gonna be fun. But second of all, you will be good at it because you will invest yourself because it will show that you actually enjoy what you're doing. And the more you enjoy it, the better you become and you just keep turning and turning. So to me, that's the one thing. I would also say that um, teamwork is something that's important. You don't achieve anything alone by yourself. So interacting with other people to discuss science, and in my case, something I love is interacting with people when I make presentations. So people that have their two feet on the ground, nutritionists, veterinarians, producers, who will come back with questions. I've actually designed a project based on a question I got at the London Swine Conference in Ontario on TTUs of piglets. So working in team with people, and I would say the last point would be uh, being flexible. You may think, well, I wanna go in this direction and that's the way to go. But if information comes that contradicts what you're thinking, you have to be flexible enough to switch around and go in another direction and change your way of thinking. And that's what will make you progress better. So those would be my three characteristics. <laughs> I think those are great. Absolutely. You need to be passionate about what you do. Um, and it's very clear that you are very passionate about your sows and, and lactational biology. So um, we do, again, appreciate your time today, Dr. Farmer. And for our audience, this is Dr. Chantel Farmer with Agricultural Canada. And again, we do thank you again for your time and wish you all the best in your research. It was my pleasure and I really enjoyed meeting you. I knew you, but never had the chance to see the face. So this virtual meeting was really enjoyable for me too. So thanks for the opportunity and uh, I was happy to be here today. Thank you. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves 
and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.